welcome to another episode of Body, Mind, and Soul with our host, Dr. Jim Polikoff. Now you will discover how to live a healthy life with purpose. And we want to thank the thousands of listeners who helped to make this celebrated podcast possible. Now to our host. This is Jim Polikoff, and I have a real treat for our listeners. Now, wouldn't it be nice to see inside our bodies? Well, I have the next best thing. Dr. Jonathan Reisman, author of the best-selling book, The Unseen Body, a doctor's journey through the hidden wonders of human anatomy. Dr. Reisman has practiced medicine in some of the world's most remote places, including Antarctica, Nepal, rural Appalachia, Kolkata, India, and also among the Ogallala Sioux Indians in South Dakota. And of course, he spent many years at Massachusetts General Hospital. His writings have also appeared in the New York Times and Washington Post. Welcome, Dr. Reisman. I'm aware that you now reside in Philadelphia, but why has it been important to your knowledge and your book, The Unseen Body, to practice medicine in all those areas of the world, which I mentioned in the introduction? Well, I, I had a kind of incurable wanderlust um, since around the time I was a university student. Uh, my two great passions before I ever went to medical school or ever wanted to be a doctor was traveling, uh, just seeing different parts of the world, different cultures, experiencing different you know, viewpoints and life ways, uh, especially ones very different from the ones I was familiar with, but also um, exploring the natural world. And of course, those two things go together where when you, you, know, you travel, you see different ecosystems, different climates, different latitudes and altitudes. You kind of see how both human culture and plants and animal species sort of change with, you know, different parts of the world, different geographic extremes. And so I bought the, brought those same two passions to the practice of medicine. And since, since I finished my training, I always kind of sought out working in places with interesting cultural contexts and interesting geographic contexts, which sort of led me to a lot of the places that you mentioned. Well, that makes sense because uh, I was very interested as I was going through your book to find out how you more or less tailored certain aspects or certain chapters to a particular area that you're in. As I understand it, in addition to your practice as in internal medicine, an internist, I should say, your interest in unseen anatomy of our bodies came from the study of cadavers. Uh, what jumped out to you during this period? I'm not sure jumped out is the best way to put it. I don't mean ghosts, of course, but <laughs> that's a little levity. Yeah. So, uh, you know, dissecting a cadaver sort of for a long time been a part of uh, sort of, the, you know, part of the initiation rites of medical school, becoming a doctor. And for me, that began on the very first day of, of medical school. I believe it was right after lunch, perhaps. They led us into the anatomy lab, which is the class where we would dissect a cadaver over the coming months. And um, even though, you know, on that first day, we actually only got to the superficial muscle of the cadaver's back. So my cadaver shared with three other students was lying face down on a gurney. And we, that day, all we got to was sort of uh, pulling back some skin off the back and looking at muscles like the, the latissimus dorsi or lats and the trapezius and other superficial muscles. And even though we didn't really get very deep into the cadaver, didn't get into the innards or organs, it still sort of really struck me and sort of uh, took hold of my uh, took hold of my interests. And I found that look inside the body, even though it wasn't that deep, to be very enlightening and um, very 
um, you know, in a way I was sort of looking at what's inside my own body as well as inside the body of every other person I would ever meet or, you know, every patient I would ever see as a doctor diagnose and treat. And so that look uh, behind the curtain of the body, if you will, sort of really um, made me obsessed with wanting to learn and see everything about the body. And I even decided before the end of that first day, I wanted to donate my own body for that same medical school dissection because I was so enthralled. Which you have done, correctly? Yes, uh, I, yes. I made plans for that to happen, and I still uh, still want that to be my fate, to be have my carcass picked apart by a bunch of nervous medical students. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Now, there's such valuable information in your book, and of course, I'm encouraging uh, my listeners to pick up a copy. But in the meantime, I'll focus on selected topics. For example, let's begin with the heart. In Chapter 2, you compare the practice of medicine to plumbing. And uh, one of the deadliest plumbing problems, actually, is the heart attack. Can you expand on this and share your perspective as far as prevention and repair, what you learned? Sure. So, so many of the diseases that affect our bodies can be boiled down to plumbing. You know, there's two basic problems with plumbing. There's clogs, uh, where some you know, liquid is not flowing appropriately. And there's leaks, where liquid is sort of leaking out of the pipe that should be inside of and a lot of diseases, as you mentioned, um, you know, boil down to those two problems, especially the clog. So with a heart attack, right, we all know about hardening of the arteries and we get atherosclerotic plaques in the walls of the arteries. And this tends to put us at risk of heart attack, as well as uh, most strokes, which are also called by a, a blood clot, basically stopping up the flow of blood. So a heart attack, which can cause pain, trouble breathing, um, uh, you know, is basically caused by a sudden blood clot completely stopping up the blood flow through one of the coronary arteries or one of the branches of the coronary arteries. So just like when your toilet gets clogged, nothing flows, things back up. Um, it causes big problems, especially for the cells of the heart, like every cell in the body must receive blood flow every second of life, uh, not only bringing oxygen, but also nutrients and washing away waste products as well. And if that stops, even for a minute, uh, cells can start to to die and which can, you know, kill you in the case of a large stroke or a heart attack. And so basically, uh, cardiologists, when they, when there is such a heart attack, they do something very similar to snaking a drain. They thread a catheter often from the uh, big artery in the groin or the wrist all the way up to that very tiny blood clot in the coronary arteries and basically, you know, get it out of the way, suck it up, put a stent to keep the pipe open and reestablish flow. And so reestablishing flow is a huge part of treating a large uh, portion of the diseases that afflict us. So uh, in your travels, I mean, were there things that you learned that you might impart some advice in terms of prevention of uh, cardiovascular disease? Sure. So, you know, I guess the, you know, the, as you mentioned, heart disease still is a a major killer of people, Um, you know, uh, at the top of the list, pretty much. And uh, so, you know, I guess the the ways to prevent it are I don't have any special insight b- beyond the things that are mostly well known, which is, you know, a healthy lifestyle, including uh, nutrition and exercise, but also preventing the risk factors for heart disease. So, of course, smoking is one of the you know sort of the biggest ones that you can uh, you know quitting smoking is probably one of the greatest ways to reduce your cardiovascular risk. Um, but other things that, you know, avoiding uh, hypertension and or treating it when you have it as well as cholesterol, diabetes, either type one or two, um, you can't really change your genes or your gender, you know, men are at higher risk at a younger age. 
and you can't change your age. So uh, there's some things you can't modify, but of course there are some things you can. And, you know, there's a lot of new treatments like a fish oil. Um, you know, it seemed like that was very promising. I'm not sure the evidence shows it as good as it was. I still certainly believe that eating fish is very healthy. Um, I agree. Taking these fish oil capsules, I, I think the evidence is not as strong as it seemed at first, which is a cycle we go through a lot in medicine where something seems like it's going to be the new cure-all. Uh-huh. And then once we study it in more depth, we realize, yes, it maybe it helps not as much as we initially thought. It's not the lifesaver fountain of youth we might have portrayed right. it as initially. I'm also uh, quite interested in your chapter on genitals. You write the following, the strangest rhythm in the human body and the one that seems to break all rules pertains to genitals. What do you mean by that statement? So when I was in medical school, I was struck by, one of the things I was struck by was how so much of what I learned about how the human body works is a rhythm or a cycle. Everything just happens again and again and again. The heart fills with blood and then squeezes to empty. Fills with blood, squeezes to empty every minute of every day of our lives from before birth until death. And this, similarly, every organ has its cycle. Um, you know, the, the gastrointestinal tract, of course, receives a meal uh, each, you know, three times a day. The gallbladder fills with bile and then empties to help you digest. The pancreas uh, creates enzymes and then squeezes them into the gut. The bladder fills with urine and empties, fills with urine and empties. The rectum fills with stool and empties. Everything has this cycle. Um, and I noticed that, you know, that the cycles of the genitals are unusual, especially menstruation, which kind of has the this is sort of an archetypal rhythm of the human body so much so that we call it a period itself, mm-hmm. you know, because it is so, so rhythmic and its rhythm is followed. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's unusual partly because it's a very slow rhythm. It only happens every month that the lining of the uterus grows and then is shed in menstruation. And it also doesn't start for over a decade after birth, um, which makes it very unusual as well. Many rhythms, especially breathing start right after birth. Some things start before birth, and then all the cycles sort of catch up in that first week or month of life. But menstruation takes 10 years or more to start. And perhaps the most unusual aspect of it at all is, you know, in most of these other rhythms I mentioned, when they stop or become too fast or too slow or stop altogether, it's a cause of disease, sometimes deadly disease, if one of these rhythms stops. But with menstruation, the stopping of the rhythm seems almost to be the point of the rhythm in the first place. because. Obviously, mm. when menstruation stops, it's pregnancy or a sign of pregnancy. It can be a sign of other things, too, but it's usually the first and earliest sign of pregnancy. Um, so when that rhythm stops, it sort of arrests. You know, it, it's almost the goal of the rhythm in the first place, which is very different from other parts of the body. Well, following along that track, what happens after post-menstruation? Uh, you know, are there additional concerns as far as the woman is concerned since they're beyond the menstruation period now? And so menopause obviously is another, uh, you know, cessation of the uh, the menstrual rhythm, which does cause a lot of bodily changes, causes a lot of uh, of new symptoms. Um, I wouldn't, you know, perhaps menopause is not the point of menstruation in the first place, but I, you know, at some point, of course, the ovaries, which, you know, when a when a child is a female is born, they have all the all the ovum, all the ova, all the eggs in their ovaries that they will ever have um, for the rest of their life. They're sort of just in this frozen stasis and eventually, you know, you run out of them and you're, uh, you know, the gen- the gynecologic organs sort of just uh, become older and less able to, to keep it up. And they do end. In other words, there, perhaps there should be more of a watchful period of time then since, you know, after you get into the menopause period, if you're a woman, 
I think that's kind of important to relate to, you know, those in our audience who are beyond that stage. Absolutely. It's a, well, a very big part of life and a big milestone for the human body, of course. You identified, Dr. Reisman, you identified the liver as the body's gatekeeper. I thought that was interesting. And you also mentioned that as you understood more about the liver, it changed your perspective of disease, life, and even food. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah, the liver is uh, really uh, an amazing organ that does so much in our bodies. It's our largest internal organ. You know, the skin is larger, but it's not an internal organ. So the liver really oversees so much of, of how our body works and how, to, how the homeostasis uh, is maintained. It's the gatekeeper because, in a way, it sort of oversees all of digestion, all of blood, all of the blood flow that goes to our guts, our alimentary canals, that picks up all the nutrients and other things that we eat. Um, all of it goes to the liver directly um, before going anywhere else in the body, almost to be sort of surveyed, checked. Uh, the liver sort of sees what's been absorbed, packages it up, you know, packages protein and fats and cholesterol and sugar and everything else that we see, you know, determines if something's toxic and should be detoxified, which the liver accomplishes itself in many cases. Um, so the liver kind of oversees everything that comes into the body through our alimentary canal, you know, a primary way that the external world gets inside of us. Um, you know, the lungs is one way through the air, of course, but the gut is the other major way that the outside world gets into us, becomes part of us. And the liver oversees basically that process whereby what we eat becomes us. Um, right. And that's part of the problem. If, if we don't take good care of, you know, the, our, our diet obviously is reflective, particularly if, for example, I would imagine if you had your gallbladder removed, which many people do after the age of 50 or 60, that puts additional stress on the liver, I would imagine. Yes, it can. You know, the liver does still create bile, um, you know, which helps us digest. It's just that the, um, gallbladder isn't there to sort of store up a big amount of bile and to squirt all at once into the gut. Um, but in some ways, there is some compensation. You know, the bile ducts coming out of the liver do get bigger so that they can sort of store a bit more bile. You know, they don't compensate for the entire gallbladder being missing, but they do. You know, it's a good example of how the body kind of, you know, whatever we do, whether for medical reasons, remove parts of the body, move things around, uh, the body really is so expert at compensating. So um, the body so, yeah. adapts to, and, and I think that's an important point to make that you've discovered in your findings then that the body can adapt, even if there is major surgery, things of that nature. Uh, it has a wonderful way of adapting to whatever your new uh, you know, situation is. Exactly. And it, it's surprising how well it can adapt. I was, uh, recently saw a patient, and this has happened several times in my career, where uh, I end up doing a CT scan of their head for some uh, some reason. Maybe they got injured. Maybe they're confused, something. And seeing a very large cyst sometimes taking up almost half the space in the skull. And this is an adult who's lived their whole life and never knew about this cyst. And they're a completely normal, intelligent, neurologic function, um, you know, despite having this massive cyst pretty much equal to the size of their brain. And this has happened several times in my career where it's a simple arachnoid cyst. And you can see the brain smushed over to one side. Um, and it's just incredible that it, it can work normally. It can compensate for being smushed into half the size of the skull in these that people. Is and that's amazing. one other example of how well the body can compensate. Well, we're, we're kind of touching on the next subject. Then when we say mind over matter, this is a literal statement, actually. 
the brain is indeed an elusive uh, area of study. So you went high into the Himalayan mountains to study the brain phenomena. So tell us about your journey and what you found. Sure. So I, I uh, was a volunteer physician with the Himalayan Rescue Association in 2016. I worked at about 12,000 feet above sea level in the Nepalese village of Manang, which is on a very popular trekking route. And there I treated uh, trekkers, both Nepali and uh, foreign trekkers, as well as porters, guides, and local people who are all sort of either living there or passing through. Um, and I was, I was struck by the kind of multifaceted connection between the brain and the mountains um, while I was there. You know, for starters, altitude sickness, which is a very mysterious aspect of human health. And I learned very little about medical school. Once I got there and got a crash course in it, I saw that um, altitude sickness really affects the brain more than any other organ. It affects the lungs sometimes too, but it's really brain swelling um, that uh, is responsible for the large majority of symptoms people experience at altitude, as well as the large majority of altitude sickness-related deaths um, at altitude. So the, the higher you go above sea level, especially when you ascend fast and outstrip your body's ability to acclimate, um, the brain can be swollen. And so I treated a lot of patients with from so the higher you go, the, the your brain actually does swell at that point. So it's at more risk of swelling. You know, the oh, higher you go, um, and especially the more you ascend in one day, uh, the more height you gain in one day, that also puts you at risk. But kind of the higher you are to start with, the higher the risk is to begin with. Um, which is why people, when they're climbing very high mountains, you know, if you've ever seen the route people take to climb Everest, there's a lot of up and back and up and back, two steps forward, one step back, you know, to give the body time to acclimate. You're already so high to start. Even Everest Base Camp is, is much higher than where I was stationed in Manang. Um, and then that's just the start of your trek. Um, but, you know, the mountains and the brain are connected in so many other ways. So the brain obviously is our highest altitude internal organ, at least when we're, we're upright. But also... Um, you know, we go to the mountains for a variety of reasons. While I was in Nepal, I, I spoke to several uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhist lamas who sort of retreat to the mountains um, to sort of meditate for much of the day and sort of, uh, you know, do their spiritual and religious practices. So it's sort of in a way, going to the mountains is this retreat into the mind, a place where people can get away from sort of the busy, noisy aspects of daily life that sort of go on in the valleys. You know, getting up to the clean air, away above the flow of human pollution, um, where you can be alone with your thoughts. You know, is a big part of why people go to the mountains as well. Um, so I kind of liked all those all those connections between the the brain um, and and the mountains. And as you said, mind over matter. You know, the brain itself has this internal structure of of, of height in a way. At the base is the brainstem, which sort of just controls the body functions, the heartbeat, the breathing rate. Um, it's sort of a robotic control over the body itself. And then as you ascend higher and higher, you get to the emotions, which are a bit more complicated and sort of perhaps the first inkling of the mind. And then if you go even higher to the cerebral cortex, that's where sort of, you know, quote unquote, the magic happens and where the sort of brain ends and the mind begins and sort of reflects the mysteries as you go higher and higher into the mountains and the physiology of the human body so becomes more and more is your, understood. Is your mind encouraged at that point to meditate? Is that what you're saying? That the, the higher you go, then eventually, you know, you, you, you get into more of a meditative state. I mean, I do think that just getting away from society, uh, you know, can put you in a more meditative state. It can be harder to think or reflect on our, our lives, uh, you know, from the bustle of daily life and sort of going to the mountains inherently means getting away from that. 
I mean, I also noticed it's very hard to breathe up there. You know, I was out of breath pretty much the whole two months mm-hmm. I was there. Even toweling off after a shower got me out of breath. Um, and my oxygen level was in the mid 80s, which if, you know, in my sea level emergency room where I work, that would be very concerning. But up there, it was normal. And I got out of breath in simple conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, even that kind of gives you some pause and makes you sort of reflect on your own body and how sort of fragile it is, especially up in that thin air. Um, and, And I do think that it does going to the mountains inherently, you know, shows you these beautiful vistas, shows you how small we are. Each of our bodies is so fragile in the face of these harsh rock and ice environments where nothing can survive. And I think that does put you in a spiritual frame of mind. Interesting. Well, one of the things in relation to brain function uh, that I just you touched on in your book, and I'm just curious about what your conclusions are in terms of you discussed marijuana, for example, and alcohol. How do those uh, how do those two substances basically affect your your brain, your thought process? Intoxicants like alcohol and marijuana are are um, help us understand how different parts of the brain work. You know, when we go about our daily lives, our subjectivity, our consciousness, our minds, it, it feels like this unified whole experience. But we've known for over a century that, you know, the brain is geographic. The brain is broken down into parts and different parts of the brain add something to our experience of subjectivity. So even though it appears to be this unified and fluid whole, it really is broken down into, uh, you know, our memories, what we see, what we hear, what we taste. Um, and, and so, uh, different parts of the brain, each contributes its own part to that whole and intoxicants can be illustrative in how they affect different parts. So alcohol, for instance, affects uh, the cerebellum, which, uh, plays a big role in coordination and balance and helps you sort of move fluidly and, and do the daily tasks like walking or anything else you do with your right, So somebody's had too much to drink. You see them stumbling around. That's that, that effect. Exactly. And and alcohol specifically affects the cerebellum. And so that's why you get those results, which is actually coincidentally very similar to people with severe uh, brain swelling at altitude, high altitude cerebral edema, the conditions called. We diagnose it the same way by having them walk a line like a you know policeman might mm-hmm. at a traffic stop. And when that same lack of coordination, you know, when we see that, assuming they have not actually drank alcohol, uh, we, you know, we know that their brain swelling is at a critical point and we have to treat them and get them to descend further. Uh, but, you know, and marijuana obviously affects other parts. It affects uh, parts of the brain related to memory. It affects, affects parts of the brain related to hunger. Um, In a good way and, or a bad way? Well, you know, if you're, if you're a kind of patient with cancer, getting chemotherapy and your appetite, appetite is non-existent, that increase in appetite can be very beneficial. And that, you know, that's why uh, marijuana is, is a good appetite stimulant and there's not many other great appetite stimulants in you know our uh, in modern medicine so that is a good one um you know if it's sort of part of a no exercise lifestyle and sitting on the couch eating cheetos maybe that increase in appetite is not not as healthy for the body (laughs) so context always matters you know a poison becomes a medicine just depending on the context and dose and person receiving it so those are important I think one important question I wanted to delve into, unlike other elements of the human body, we understand far less about the mind. And obviously, you know, we the mind, in a sense, is connected to the brain. But how does our mind relate to our brain? 
I think a big part of it is this this kind of geographic breakdown of of the brain. You know, I think there's been there's been so many theories about how to break the brain down. You know, there's some older ones where we sort of called the lower functions the lizard brain, and then a step up from that was the mammalian brain, and then a step above that was the neo mammalian brain. You know, this hierarchy of animals to sort of reflect the hierarchy of of, of complexity of function in the brain. Um, you know, that's sort of not uh, that specific scheme is not in vogue anymore, but there are many others. Um, but I really think, you know, I guess everyone's take on the mind might be a little different. And I don't, I, I don't discount any, any view at all. You well, know, for example, think, you see the brain, but you don't really see the mind. Right. You don't see the mind, you know, clearly there's a connection, right? Because, uh, you know, injuries to the brain obviously can affect the mind, um, especially strokes. Strokes, for instance, can be very illustrative of brain function because it's almost like an ex a living experiment in that you you get the death of a small area of the brain, sometimes large, but more illustrative if it's a very small area, and then see what sort of function that person lacks. You know, a very small stroke might make someone be unable to recognize faces. Um, it might cut out vision just to the lower outer cor corner of their vision, you know, or half their vision or you know, depending where the stroke is, it can affect everything from memory to the fluidity of speech. Um, and I feel like that really illustrates how sort of broken down the brain is. I mean, if someone forced me to create my own theory of the mind, I would say that it just is a million different functions of the brain sort of stitched together into the into what we experience as a whole, when actually it's sort of a million parts all just working together. And so there's nothing you don't more than that. You don't compare it to the soul, for example, which again is imaginary in a sense. I mean, it, I, I don't think so. But, you know, it's some, I, I fully accept if other people do believe that or see the mind differently. I would, I mean, we'll be debating this for the next 10,000 years <laughs> as we've been debating it for the last 10,000. And I love debating. So I'm open to all ideas. <laughs> well, it's interesting in your book that you describe the skin as being intelligent. That's a different perspective. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So the skin, you know, I was fascinated with the skin before medical school, as they say in the chapter, I learned to, I learned a lot of kind of prehistoric craft and really uh, loved, especially the, the craft of skin tanning or tanning animal hides, which I really took to and loved. Um, and then when I got, you know, so the skin was sort of had a special place in my heart because I had uh, um, gained some skill and some experience in that craft and really loved it. When I got to medical school, as I mentioned, uh, with our cadaver, you know, the skin was almost treated as sort of wrapping paper where you just tear it off, get it out of the way and sort of get onto the, the goal, the present side. Um, and it was we kind of ignored it in anatomy lab, which I was, uh, you know, not thrilled with. Um, but then we learned about it in some more detail, like in histology class, pathology class. So basically, the skin has this magical ability to um, to predict the future in a way, you know, when when sun shines on your skin. The, the skin senses it and senses the need to protect DNA and skin cells from the ionizing radiation from the sun. So skin darkens, it tans, you know, and when you look at tan skin under the microscope, you actually see just this tiny little plug of pigment, a tiny little bit of pigment right in front of the nuclei of all the cells, just to sort of create this wall against ionizing radiation, only for the DNA, because that's really the only part that's susceptible to, to a mutation from the radiation. Um, so it's almost predicting the future, predicting more sunshine to come and protecting itself as a result. And you see that same intelligence with calluses. So when, when our skin experiences friction, 
it sort of thickens and hardens into these calluses, almost in anticipation of more friction coming in the future. So in a way, skin seem really intelligent in those two ways. That not to mention when we get wounds, you know, pe- people coming to the ER for open skin wounds, uh, cuts, et cetera, are a huge part of my daily job closing those wounds. And I usually sew them shut, uh, mostly for cosmetic reasons, but uh, to reduce the eventual scar. But almost all of those will close on their own because skin has this magical ability to cells migrate from the edges of the wound into fill the defect and just regrows. And, you know, you do get maybe a less than beautiful scar, but skin sort of magically has this ability to, you know, close itself, to keep the body's insides closed away from the outside. So it's, it's really an intelligent yeah. organ. Well, wouldn't it be nice if our internal organs had the same capability as skin in terms of, you know, protecting itself and revitalizing itself? In, in chapter 15 of your book, The Unseen Body, you write, every piece of our bodies, every bit of flesh requires a constant flow of blood as the bare minimum to stay alive. So what do we need to know about blood and how to keep it healthy so that we survive effectively? Right, so the, the very basic uh, you know, job of the cardiovascular system is for the heart to push blood through this branching to infinity vascular tree to deliver fresh nutrient-filled and oxygen-filled blood to the doorstep of all trillion of our cells really every second. Uh, You can think of it as almost a really large and complicated drip irrigation system where this uh, branching system of pipes brings fresh water, or in the case of the body, fresh blood, to every, you know, the base of every plant in the garden, the base of every cell. Um, And if that stops for even some seconds, you know, besides causing tremendous pain, depending on where that is, that could be in the heart with a heart attack or elsewhere, um, you know, it's those plants, if you will, those cells start to wither and die as they might uh, without getting the the water needed from drip irrigation. Um, So, you know, in a way, getting oxygen to your cells is sort of the most basic, uh, most basic function that blood must accomplish. And that's harder, you know, at altitude, for instance, like I said, my oxygen was low and you find that your body doesn't quite work as well. You get all these weird symptoms. uh, You get this mysterious brain swelling and all of that is very poorly understood. Clearly the flow of blood is necessary, you know, beyond oxygen, it brings a whole lot of other nutrients. And I think, you know, reflecting diet, reflecting lifestyle, avoiding toxins, uh, you know, it's kind of a, an important way to keep your, keep your blood healthy, keep what it delivers to your cells healthy as well. Here, here again, it's important what you're eating because you are what you eat, as they say. Exactly. It's, it's true physiologically. Now, during your interview that I listened to on NPR, which I found fascinating, <laughs> you host these dinners where attendees actually eat internal organs, as I understand. Uh, the obvious question is why and what do people learn from these dinners that you host? That's correct. So um, so I host, uh, me and a chef teamed up to have dinners called Anatomy Eats. Um, we've held several at the Free Public Library here in Chile. And uh, Anatomy Eats is basically sort of a, exactly what you might expect uh, when a doctor and a chef get together. So for each of those dinners, I sort of bring my knowledge of anatomy and physiology of the human body and by extension of animal bodies. Um, and then, you know, we sort of talk about 
interesting body parts, internal organs. And then while talking about them and exploring how fascinating and complex they are, we serve dishes made with those organs. So for instance, we had a dinner based on the cardiovascular system where we talked all about the heart and I, me and the chef dissected a, a cow's heart, which is quite large um, in front of the audience. We ended up serving three species of heart cooked in three different ways. We served some blood sausage and we served uh, bone marrow where all the blood cells come from. So that was the cardiovascular system dinner. And really the goal is sort of just to have people think about how their own body works and to understand how what we eat from the animal's bodies really is very similar, you know, physiologically and anatomically. Um, and so I think that perspective, the food perspective and the anatomy perspective sort of crammed together side by side gives people an interesting perspective on what they are made of as well. So in other words, I would imagine if you're eating internal organs or you're serving those, genitals would be a dish that you would serve. Am I correct? I mean, a, a wide variety. And Do people, uh, do you have others, anyone at the table who really feels like this is not for them or my God, I can't believe I'm eating this or do they feel like it's delicious food? Well, um, the food, you know, I have to say, in my own perspective, the food is delicious. Uh, Chef Ari Miller is really a master at cooking these unusual body parts. I think our dinners tend to be selective in who they attract. You know, I think someone who might feel that way, as you just uh, laid out, might not buy a ticket and come to one of these dinners. So it's sort of self-selecting for people who are kind of curious and adventurous eaters. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's just fascinating. I mean, it, it, can people actually uh, email you, call in, try to put themselves on a waiting list for one of your dinners? And yeah, I'm assuming yeah. since you live in Pennsylvania, I mean, or Philadelphia, that's where these dinners take place, I'm guessing. Correct. That is where these dinners take place. So they, uh, we might be taking the show on the road in the near future. Um, but if, if people can go to anatomyeats.com, they can uh, find the contact info and definitely yeah, you can um, see a good segment there that the uh, WHYY PBS here in Philly did on our musculoskeletal dinner. It really encompasses how the dinners work. Well, that, that is fascinating. Now, one of the questions that I have is, and just briefly as we wind this up, uh, Dr. Reisman, I understand you operate a nonprofit organization to improve healthcare and edu education in India. Am I correct? That's right. Um, when I was a medical student, I uh, took a year off from medical school and spent a bunch of time in India, including volunteering for a charity based in Calcutta called Calcutta Rescue. It was started by a British physician in the late 70s and has been uh, growing ever since. And, you know, there's so many charities in Calcutta um, I saw while I was there and met other volunteers working for various medical and educational charities. And I thought Calcutta Rescue really stood out in delivering impressively high-quality medical care and high-quality education to really some of the poorest people I've ever encountered living on the slum, living in the slums of the city or on the sidewalks itself. Calcutta has a huge uh, population of homeless families mm -hmm. and people. Um, I was really impressed with the medical care they were providing. I was impressed with how very cheap medications can treat you know, these diseases like vitamin A supplementation can prevent blindness. Um, in children, and these pills cost pennies. And so I was just really amazed at uh, how much good can be done with so little. And so I started a nonprofit when I got home, I'm still as a med student, to, to support Calcutta Rescue and other charities that are doing kind of the high-quality work that might have an impact on people. 
Wonderful. Well, it's good work that you do. There's no question about it. I'm not certain that I'm ever going to be hungry enough to, to join you in one of your anatomy eating dinners. Uh, I don't know that I have the intestinal fortitude to do that, but I do wish to urge our listeners to promptly pick up a copy of your book, The Unseen Body. And uh, tell us a little bit about how, what's the best way that our listeners can go to find the book right now if they want to buy a copy? Sure. So I guess Amazon is the easiest. Um, you know, there's other ways of ordering it, Barnes and Noble, as well as other um, uh, websites. Um, it's in your local bookstore as well. Um, so if you want to support your local bookstore, that's a worthy cause. But um, any of those ways, uh, it should be available. So I want to remind our listeners that they can always visit our website, bodymindsoulpodcast.net. Uh, to find more information about Dr. Reisman and his excellent book. Uh, and we'll have all the information on the website. So I want to encourage our listeners, if they simply enough, go to Amazon.com. As Dr. Reisman suggests, it's The Unseen Body. Uh, and that's the title of the book. Actually, I have a copy here. It just says The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of the Human Anatomy. Quite a title. And I mean, it's just a fascinating title, actually. And the book itself, having read through it, is fascinating. I want to thank you for the copy of the book. I found it overwhelmingly interesting. So I don't always sit and read something at one one sitting, but I did. <laughs> but in any case, uh, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Reisman, for joining us on the podcast. And uh, perhaps we'll have you back again uh, to talk more about other subject matter. We sort of touched the surface sort of skin deep, as they say. But in any case, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank our audience once again for joining us. Normally, I try to do a nutritional tip at the end of the program, but this interview went a little longer than normal. And of course, I think what Dr. Reisman had to say was probably even more valuable. So uh, we really appreciated him being part of this interview. And again, remember, you can access all of this by simply going to our website, bodymindsoulpodcast.net. And you'll be able to pick up all the information, other podcasts that I think you might find very valuable as well. For those thousands of listeners that follow us each and every episode, I want to thank you for staying with us. We really appreciate your support. We'll see you again at the next episode. Be safe. Be well. Remember to visit our informative website bodymindsoulpodcast.net, where you can learn more about Dr. Reisman and his book, The Unseen Body, as well as access our other podcasts for valuable information. Also be watching for a new book written by Dr. Polakoff and his colleague, Dr. Hardesty, The Real Me, How the Right Approach to Plastic Surgery Can Empower You and Reveal Your Inner Beauty. Thanks to our thousands of listeners who support us. Remember, you can access other podcasts along with valuable information by simply going to bodymindsoulpodcast.net. Again, that's bodymindsoulpodcast.net. Thank you. Thank you.